Hey listeners, now that fall is upon us, what are the normal things that come with this time of year? The weather's turning cooler, even here in Southern California where I live. The kids are back at school, well kind of, I know mine's taking school from her bedroom in the back of the house. There'll be no apple picking trips this year for us, uh, not so much from the pandemic, but from the fires we've been living with out here in California. They pass through the area where we go every year uh, a month or so ago. Boy, 2020's been relentless. So, have your fall rituals been completely disrupted, or are you still able to find those that act as relief valves for your soul? Scott Kelly used to work in IT for such places as the U.S. Air Force, Oracle, Disney, and various busted startups. Back in January 2018, he took on the American dream, sold his home and quit his job in order to travel more and enjoy life. Since then, he's visited at least seven countries and 13 states and has plans for many more. He also volunteers for the state parks, the Sierra Club, and the Burning Man Festival. My guest today is Scott Kelly, who is uh, a man that has taken the American dream on heads on. He quit his job, sold his house. It's like a Billy Joel song, Scott. And he is traveling the country and the world, for that matter. Uh, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how's it going, Jeff? I think if I had a dog, it'd be more like a country western song. <laughs> and more challenging, I would think, trying to take a dog all over the world. Yeah, I'd have to drink all that cheap beer, too, that they love. <laughs> So talk a little bit about your career, your background, how you got to the point of being able to quit your job and travel the world at the uh, ripe young age that you're at, so that uh, the rest of us who have to attempt to work for a living are uh, jealous? Uh, well, it was, uh, it was kind of two things. I was you know, kind of unhappy with my job for a while, and um, my son got old enough to go to college. And when he was no longer living at home, I basically came to the conclusion that the only reason I was going to the office to earn money was so I could continue to pay the mortgage for the place so that I could live here in order to go to work, which all seemed really stupid. Um, and it turns out that if you don't have a mortgage or utilities or much of anything else to pay for, um, the amount of money you have in your savings account goes a long ways, especially if you sell your house and use Oh, the, yeah, I'll um, bet. Use the modest proceeds from that to fund uh, further travel. Nice. So how long have you been on the road now? I quit my job. Um, it was early 2018, I think about March. Yeah. Over two and a half years. Two and a half years. Where have you gone on your travels? Uh, mostly in the Western United States. Um, we did a jaunt up to uh, Alaska and British Columbia as well. My dad joined me for that. And then uh, as far as overseas, my sister lives in South Australia, so I went over to Australia for three months and visited nice. her and did some traveling there. And then a friend of mine, uh, uh, her job told her to go live in Germany for a year before they fired her. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they re they relocated her all the way to Germany, and then a year later, they let her go. Yeah, they were basically like, we need you to go to Germany to train your replacements in Germany. And she was like, okay. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So uh, I went and visited uh, her and then traveled around uh, Germany and uh, 
the Czech Republic and uh, some Hungary and things like Hungary and places I hadn't been before in Europe for yeah. a couple of months. So nice. it was nice. Cool. Oh, and uh, Ireland. I went to Ireland on that trip too. Oh, uh, that must have been great. I hear Ireland is a beautiful country to, to spend time in. They are so friendly and so nice. It's, it's just yeah. astonishing. Um, do, you, do you think they'll take us depending on how the election goes? Can we all move there or some of us anyway? Um, believe it or not, I, I continually do a little bit of research into such things. And um, the best place to move now, if you want to live overseas and not have a job, is Austria. Yeah. Ooh, okay. So if you if you are if you do not want a job and you can provide your own uh, health insurance costs and can learn German, uh, the Austrians apparently are happy to have you. Cool. <laughs> That's good to know. I don't know about the healthcare cost and not having a job part, but. That at the moment wouldn't be terribly different than where I am in my life right now. So anyway. Yeah, I'm not sure how health, private health insurance works over there, but uh, I found Austria to be an amazing country. I liked it a lot better than Germany. I call it better Germany. Everything you want, to, want in Germany is just better in Austria. Why is that? The people are nicer? The settings are nicer? Yeah, the people are nicer. Uh, they're not uh, as quite as uh, uh, rigid and sort of attitude having as the Germans. Um, the mountains okay. are better. Uh, the trains are better. The buses are better. Uh, it was great. I really liked it there. Very cool. Uh, were you on the road when COVID came into things? Yeah, um, I was. So I was, uh, I have a travel trailer that we had purchased for the trip up to Alaska. And so I, I'll use that sometimes and other times just my truck camper. And I had just picked up my travel trailer and was spending like a week or two going some places in California because I was supposed to go over to the coast and volunteer at a California state beach uh, starting uh, April 1st. And okay. then they canceled and closed yeah. all the state parks kind of for some indeterminate. Yeah, everything. So uh, what did you do? I mean, did you find some place to hunker down? Did you continue to travel around? What was it like visiting different places that were trying to figure out what they were going to do about the lockdown? Well, if you put on your way back hat, nobody really knew what was happening or and all the local reactions were very different back then. And it didn't uh, immediately impact me very much because, uh, you know, I'm out camping somewhere. I, uh, on, on, a, on a normal day, I might see one or two people. And usually that's just to wave at them. So my plan was just to, you know, keep camping until and visit visiting places until, um, until, you know, things improved, which I thought, you know, might be a few weeks or a month. And when it became clear that that wasn't going to happen anytime soon, uh, California also made it really, really hard to camp anywhere in the state, even land that is ostensibly open, like BLM land and national forest land. They effectively yeah. made it so you couldn't camp in California. However, uh, Nevada and Arizona and Utah weren't nearly as restrictive. So I, okay. I dropped my travel trailer back off, uh, went over to my dad's place in Arizona and uh, hung out with him for a little while, made sure he was all good and all that kind of stuff. And then I did a bunch of uh, shorter trips based out of Arizona for like a week or two weeks at a time until uh, later this summer when I uh, left and did like a big multi-month trip up to Yellowstone and then finally over into Washington and to where my brother lives in Oregon. So this kind of traveling started again after states like California figured out that it was better to be outdoors than uh, to be locked up inside. Um, I think actually even before that, because California was a little bit slow to come to that conclusion. I don't, you know, the, the, the states with a lot less people uh, and far fewer uh, urban residents uh, didn't have such drastic restrictions on on things or attitudes about things at the time. So okay. like when I traveled up 
along the border of Utah and Colorado, where there's hardly anyone, and then over to the border of Utah and Nevada, where, again, there is hardly anyone. Other than going into uh, a grocery store or some other place where an employer might require you to wear a mask, uh, it was very difficult to tell that you know anything was out of the ordinary, other than things like visitor centers being closed. Yeah, visitor centers everywhere are just closed until who knows when. Right. Okay. You speak spent a lot of time working on Burning Man. And I know your heart must be broken because Burning Man isn't happening right now. And with a little luck, maybe next year. But can you talk about uh, what the festival's like, what you've done for them, and what it was like when things started to shut down and they realized they weren't going to be able to get together? Yeah, I went out a few times as a participant and as an artist and did a couple of things out there. But a few years ago, a friend of mine who volunteers for them uh, sort of voluntold me is the term we use. Huh, huh. So I was, I was, I was voluntold into working for uh, a department at Burning Man called the Fire Art Safety Team, and essentially what we do is go to uh, art installations and art cars, and yeah. what it what we do is we visit artists uh, who have uh, art pieces that involve usually some kind of propane or other fire art component, and we make sure that they have constructed it in, in a safe and sane way that it's unlikely to kill anyone. Okay, so your your job is to control the pyromaniacs. Uh, our job is to get them to a place where we feel that everything's probably going to be okay. <laughs> okay, and I assume that's been successful since I don't recall hearing any stories about, you know, massive mass casualties due to... Uh, for the most part, the people out there uh, who are building fire art are either uh, really experienced and, and really know what they're doing, or they're completely new to it and they're and they want to have input and feedback. And the other people that are experienced also tend to bring a lot of tools and supplies and will gladly help somebody out that needs like an extra shutoff valve. I mean, like the biggest thing, you know, I do is tell them you need to have a shutoff valve, you know, or okay. a fire extinguisher, things like that. It's, 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 it's not really uh, the wild west. Um, but we just want to make sure that everybody knows what they're doing. So, if anything does go sideways, uh, it doesn't get too bad. So so I've never been to Burning Man myself. I've heard lots of the stories that float around about Burning Man. Uh, do people do things like truck large amounts of propane and things like that in there? I mean, what's it, what's it like overall? Yes. Um, so recently, the last few years, the org has kind of started a fuel depot where you can get propane tanks and other kind of fuels on Playa. But before that, everybody had to bring in their own. And... Our camp has a very modest, uh, small flame uh, effect section, and we regularly would haul in 600 uh, gallons of propane. Wow! And we're, we're we're tiny. We're not we're not doing anything major, right? So we're talking gas trucks worth of uh, propane being brought in by people. Um, well, uh, a large cargo van where the cargo component is mostly taken up by propane tanks. Uh, okay. Um... What kind of art were you doing when you were still doing art? Uh, I did uh, a project out there that was, um, uh, are you familiar? I'm sure you are familiar, but if everybody else is the, at the convenience store, there's the little tray next to the register where you take a penny or you leave a penny. Yeah. I had an art piece that was sort of conceptually the same, um, where essentially I had a large, very large version of the take a penny tray, and we seeded it with uh, certain things you might want while you're out in the deep playa very far away from the city. Um, Okay. Or it take, might take you an hour to get back to the city. So we left things like water, dust masks, goggles, um, squirt guns, like all kinds of, of things in this. And we encourage people to leave things behind. 
um, and we would uh, kind of go out and resupply it during the week. Uh, we had a camera so people would take photos, and uh, it was really interesting to see how that would have, would evolve over the week as people would leave things uh, that we were not expecting and take. Yeah. You know, a lot of things would disappear that we were like, "Huh, I didn't think anybody would want that," but who knows? Um, huh. That was a fun project. And then the year after that, I was part of a extremely large sound camp, helping them essentially construct like a facsimile of the Roman Colosseum to uh, use for a DJ booth and dance floor. Nice. Is the entire audience out there mostly made up of uh, creative people and artists? Um, what, how would you break it down? Hmm. Well, there's a lot of creative people and artists, which is the primary reason I go out is to support the art and see the art myself. Um, yeah. There's a lot of uh, the, the hippie-ish kind of crowd. Um, okay. and, uh, there's a lot of, uh, the raver kind of crowd, the people that are only out there for the music. Okay. Is there a lot of organized concerts or is it just artists showing up and just doing their thing? It's mostly the latter. The org, uh, the Burning Man org itself does not put out any kind of like lineup or schedule. Um, there are some under, underground, uh, self, uh, created resources for people that are interested in doing that. So people who want to know where the famous DJs are playing all week can figure it out. But it's uh, really not a highlight. It's not like uh, it's not like going to Coachella and knowing that like this band's playing at three o'clock on Friday. Okay. Do they spread themselves far enough apart so that you could go over to one particular person and really get to absorb the performance they're giving, or do you have a lot of overlap? Does it feel like a circus, or does it feel like everybody has built a like a town where you go into different compartments to hear and see and all that? Oh, I, I don't. That's a hard question to, to answer. Um, I think in when I first started going, it felt a little bit more like the latter, where you could go to these different areas and have different experiences. But the scale of art and music in camps in the last few years has been so insane that the best way I could describe it is... So you're familiar with the Main Street Electrical Parade at Disneyland? <laughs> yes, I am. And the crowds associated with the Main Street Electrical Parade and the attractions yeah. and the lights. Yes. Take Take all of that, expand it a hundredfold in every direction as far as you can see, <laughs> or could ride a bicycle, and and that's what it's like. Oh, okay. So and, it, 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 and all of ahead. that stuff is provided by the participants. Like the org doesn't provide any of that music, any of that art, any of that light. Everybody brings that themselves. That sounds pretty amazing. How how long is the setup and the teardown? So there's a officially there's a build week and an event week. Um, so okay. camps come out generally like a week early to build things or artists will come out a week or so early. And then the event is a week. Um, now there's a lot of uh, setup that happens before that build week as well. The org is out there putting a lot of infrastructure in place that, that a lot of people don't realize they do, but uh, yeah. yeah, a lot of, a lot of mapping, a lot of laying out of the streets, a lot of putting up shade structures and, you know, placing porta potties and all that kind of stuff happens as well. But for okay. most people, it's a, there's a build week and an event week. Okay. Is there some kind of a entry fee in order to cover all of the overhead costs? How do they cover it? Oh, they sell tickets. It's, a, it's strictly, okay. strictly ticket sales. I think okay. tickets last year were, well, let's see, two tickets and a vehicle pass last year, I think were roughly $1,400. All right. And and for that, that's for a week? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's... Or, or maybe longer. If you're an artist who's going out there, uh, you might you might be out there for like 14 days. Okay. Sounds sounds amazing. What's the word on um, next year? Pessimistic at best. Really? Okay. Uh, the most recent interview I heard with uh, the CEO of the project, uh, she's extremely pessimistic that there'll be a 2021 event. 
Um, they're not going to okay. sell any tickets because they can be pretty sure there'll be a 2021 event. So uh, yeah, dicey. Uh, they're having a lot of financial problems with uh, meeting budgets and paying staff, as you might expect. So yeah, they're, sure. they're trying to raise uh, any kind of funds they possibly can right now. Yeah. It's a common problem across all of the arts these days, right? I was uh, speaking um, with a, a friend who's a playwright and a teacher in New York, and she's been in the middle of producing a project. And, uh, you know, well, it's not going to happen this year, maybe next year, right? We're going to try to workshop it again, yeah. whether we have to do it on Zoom or we have to, you know, and going through all of that with the hopes that the 2022 season at least happens at this point. But yeah, it's rough. It's rough in the industry and it's rough in the arts. I heard uh, an interview recently with somebody, I think it was the San Francisco Opera. And one of the only bright spot in their fundraising uh, issues is because they're doing a lot of virtual performances and things these days, they're getting a lot of people becoming subscribers or at least donating that are out, yeah. well outside the San Francisco metro area, like all over the world. Yeah, which they you know didn't well, really have. Well, that's probably the biggest opportunity that comes out of all of this is it happened at a time when technology was ready for us to be able to do um, uh, video conferencing and and that kind of thing on a really big scale. And so, not only can if you if you can build the performance venue and do it, can you reach a much bigger audience? than you used to be able to. You can now, in, for some jobs, right? You don't have to live in a big city anymore. You can go someplace where it's relatively inexpensive and and settle in there and still be able to keep your uh, high-paying job in the big city, you know? Yeah, we've had people that were doing that at my old job for a number of years, and they were uh, sort of the outliers and the weirdos. And when they decided to like redo all the office space at work a couple of years ago, it was like, why Why are we even going to get more office space? Like, why don't we just all do what these other people have already shown is totally fine? Yeah, that's, I think it's going to become the norm. Well, I think for artistically, uh, we're still in the phase where we're trying to use uh, distributed uh, technologies to emulate what we used to do in the real world, uh, which is limiting. Um, I yeah. think you'll remember the story of, you know, when motion pictures came out, they were basically just film the plays. Yeah. And it took a long time to figure out how to use the technology to create a different art form. And I think the same thing needs to happen for um, the arts in general is if there's, if the audience is distributed worldwide and there is some sort of uh, technical restrictions, how do those become features and not bugs? How do you stop trying to emulate um, yeah. stage play? Yeah, no, you're I, right. I was going to say, I heard some good reactions. I haven't watched it yet, but I heard people had very good reactions to the filmed Hamilton performance because of the way they did the camera work in that. Um, it was really good. I did watch it. Um, and a lot of that was because they were able to get more up on the stage and uh, the way they shot it, they didn't just focus on the lead actors all the time. They took advantage of getting the background uh, players involved as well. So it was a very rich experience. But that was that. So that was done pre-pandemic, and that's actually something that's done with every Broadway show when it opens. There is a professional video recording of it made. Just most of them are never released. So. Hamilton was a was a really uh, beautifully presented uh, performance. And one of the things I really got to give them kudos for was they gave everybody main card credit on the show, including the, the chorus. Right. So every single person who performed on the stage at some point got a single card with their name on it in the end credits. And that's very cool because a lot of those folks just wind up disappearing into the background. 
how very undisney of them uh yeah well you know i think it was i i don't think disney is actually the one who made it i think disney just bought it and put it on really quick because um you know they saw the market value of it and needed to keep disney plus alive uh in the middle of lack of content creation i like to call it you disney know, plus well with a french accent okay i'm i'm looking forward to the day when it actually has some new content because it's kind of been static since the uh since the service was dropped and um to be honest with you, I'm not one willing to pay a subscriber uh, fee and an extra $30 to watch a, a video on demand mm -hmm. uh, like they tried to do with Mulan, though I'm guessing a fair number of people did, though clearly not enough to support the company the way it needs to be supported because they're laying off 28,000 people from the parks this week. Well, so. if, if the Mulan thing was a huge success, they would have uh, released the other uh, live action movies they have in the can, and then they haven't. They pushed them back uh, to yeah. next year, right? Yeah, no, that's that's very true. Speaking of of trying to figure out ways to pull the arts together from a technology perspective, uh, you know, Allison, my daughter, is a musician. She's a flautist, and she's studying in um, uh, college now uh, for a, both a music ed and performance. And she's desperate to get back on a stage where she can play with other people, right? I mean, standing at home and playing flute in front of a Zoom um, uh, call just doesn't cut it. And that's one of those areas where I know that in Germany, they were doing some research into how air passes through the instruments and accelerates and spreads so they could figure out where to place people on a stage that's considered relatively safe. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know, man. It's one of these days. Have, has uh, she, considered, uh, she considered being a street busker with some other people? Um, she's thought about it but at the moment since she just started school she doesn't really have the time to figure out where to do that mm -hmm. but um the thing she misses the most is she had discovered pit orchestra uh both through high school performances when the school decided to start doing live music with their musical performances and then um with one of the local community theater groups and so she was having a blast doing um, uh, doing live musicals as part of the pit. Um, and she really, really, really misses that. Uh, that's still going to be a ways off until we can figure out how to get people back into a, a big closed room. Um, the, the Shakespeare in the Park people apparently have it uh, figured out, right? That's just going to put everybody in a park. Um, well, yeah, doing an out doing an outdoor performance is okay, but they're still not ready to put the actors together on a stage yet. I just right? heard there's a new sto uh, story today that I just listened to of uh, they've restarted some shooting in L.A. and uh, some yes. actors that were filming uh, whatever they uh, what they call it, intimate scenes. Um, yeah, and it, but it sounded a little bit like uh, the equivalent of being on a porn set or something. The way they well, were so it's process. so it's it's funny. So um, a couple of months back. The motion picture industry got together, the, the producers and the different uh, guilds and all got together and they created a white paper for how we can reopen production safely, right? And they submitted it to Newsom and all the other governors uh, and they finally got permission to start reopening production again. So we do have shows that have gone back in. But I heard a story that a couple of soap operas decided to go ahead and start shooting earlier than that. And the way they solved the intimacy problem was they started hiring the actor's spouse as a body double. <laughs> and so you bring, his, bring your wife onto the set. You can do your kissy scene with your wife. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and, and then, you know, the other actress can come back in and take over. So, yeah, you, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, right? Um, and all of these productions are trying to create these bubble effect, right? This, you know, for the next three months you're going to live 
in an isolated space and you're not allowed to go out of that isolated space. I know they're doing that in London for some of the big tent poles that shoot over in Pinewood. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you can go to London for the next three months, but you're living in a hotel that's a block and a half away from the studio. You can't talk to anybody and you can only come to work and take your COVID test twice a day, you know, and wear your mask when you're not working and wipe everything down everywhere you go. But hey, it's work and it's going to get us some content again, which is good. Uh, yeah, that'd be it's, tough. But I, I, I could see that working for the film industry can, considering how compartmentalized the shoots are anyway. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge the film industry's got is they have to, they really, really, really have to reduce the crew sizes on the set because, and to be fair and not to pick on the unions too much, there are a lot, of, there's a lot of redundancies in order to make things more efficient. Right. Um, and it's just, it's just going to mean you need less people to do the same amount of work and it may take a little longer, but at the same time, less people are exposed. And then of course the union contracts get in the way and you know, how do you make sure people are getting paid and all that kind of stuff? It's, it's, it's a brave new world, right? We have to come out on the other side somehow. And, and I don't think, you know, one day we're going to say, okay, we're good again, flip a switch and everything's going to go back to the way it used to be. I think that we're learning a lot from this and it's going to change the way we do things. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of coming out the other side, uh, I'm in Santa Barbara County and apparently we're now in the uh, the red tier in California, which means they can open up uh, dining inside of restaurants again. Oh, okay. I'm not convinced that's a great idea, but sure. Me, me neither. <laughs> and I'll be interested I mean, to see which restaurants actually do it. So, so the cha- right, the challenge is um, most of the restaurants, we're in California here, we have, you know, endless summer all year long. The only thing we have to worry about is with a little luck, we'll get rain, which we need because otherwise the state will continue to burn. And so moving your dining operation outdoors has been, it's reduced capacity, obviously, and it's been inconvenient for a lot of these places. But like, I go around my neighborhood and the little local restaurants have taken over portions of their parking lots and just put tables out. Yeah. Um, and between that and, and a more robust takeout business, a lot of them are making it through. But, you know, winter's coming and people are going to get sick again just out of the normal course of getting sick. And, um, but I, you know... You say winter's coming, but that's winter in California. What, I don't know what people in like Wisconsin or Vermont would possibly do for outdoor dining in the winter. That well, seems terrible. well, they can't, right? They're yeah, obviously they can't. They're not going to have outdoor dining in those places, and they're going to economically they're going to suffer more. Um, but you know, it's a it's a trade off, right? How many people are you willing to die so that you can go out and have a nice steak dinner? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, that, that made me think of uh, data. Have you looked at the uh, the new uh, Google Maps layer for COVID-19 info? No, I haven't seen that yet. It's on the Google mobile app. You have to click the little layer where you switch between uh, like street view and uh, satellite view and whatever. And there's a COVID-19 yeah. one. And it tell, I guess it presents the best data Google has, however they're getting it, for state level, county level, and even city level. And it tells you whether it's trending up or down. Okay. So if you're uh, obsessed by data, I definitely recommend taking a look at it. Uh, this uh, this whole event has definitely gotten me obsessed with data because I believe that the data is necessary in order to understand risk, right? I think the biggest mistake we've made as a country is by trying to pretend nothing's happening. We're not collecting the data we need. And so we can't make reasonable decisions about how risky it is to go out there, right? I mean, if I know it's a, it would be logistically impossible and maybe too expensive. But if you tested every single person in the country on, say, a weekly basis, 
you'd know how many people were actually exposed, how many people were actually getting sick from it, um, and in what categories, and then you could make an intelligent decision about what the real risk is. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, we, and even if and we don't know that. Even if you didn't test people, uh, if you did uh, uh, systematically what they're doing in a lot of localities is just testing uh, waste treatment systems. You could have yeah. a pretty good idea yeah, heard about where the hotspots are. Um, yeah. But I mean, my other frustration is uh, somebody who likes data is uh, humans are inherently uh, irrational about risk um, and risk that I have some degree of control over is very carefully discounted via risk that I have no control over. So people, yeah. no, people, that's true. people value or they, they, they think this is the, this is extremely risky uh, in their course of their lives when every day they do extremely risky things that they yeah. think are okay because, you know, I'm driving, I'm behind the wheel of the car or it's okay to ride a bicycle without a helmet or whatever the risky thing you do is that you don't think is risky. So that's a little yeah. bit of a pet peeve of mine. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally get that. Um, trying to find a job in an economy where we should be able to open things back up again because we probably could control the risk better is really frustrating to me. Without the data, we're never going to get there, right? We're going to wind up in this constant cycle and we're basing it on how many people show up at the hospital rather than how many people have been exposed versus how many people actually get sick. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's kind of like that. I'm sure you've had those discussions at work where uh, somebody in management wants you just to add an extra nine onto the availability yeah. guarantee, right? Yeah. Just, yeah. just make, it, yeah. make it six nines. Why can't you do that? Well, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, let me yeah. tell you why. Yeah. So, in all of your travels, what's been the general? I mean, I know you travel to places that are not heavily populated a lot, but what has been the population response to what's been going on in the places where there are people? I think in LA and particularly the Bay Area, uh, people are very uh, diligent about wearing masks. Um, there is. I haven't seen anybody be super crazy or anything like that, but there's definitely a little bit of social shaming going on for the people who choose not to. Um, all, all the employees are wearing masks. Um, I'm, I am kind of appalled that every once in a while in a large business, uh, you see somebody who's got the, their mask down around their chin or is like just wearing a yeah. bandana or something. I was, I had to pick up a prescription, uh, at a Walmart in Arizona and the guy at the pharmacy counter is like wearing a bandana. And I'm like, really, Walmart? No protective equipment for the people who work in the pharmacy. So I think uh, I think people in metro areas are are really on board, and uh, it's it's people who are more rural areas that you know inherently encounter less people. Uh, I think that are uh, that I, in my experience at least is, have been less diligent about being masked in public you you think that's just a factor of they don't see a lot of it happening around them so they don't really believe it yes and if you're you know uh, a rancher in you know eastern nevada who yeah. sees like three people a week and that's mostly at the gas station like you know would, who are you wearing a mask for anyway uh my sister was telling me uh that her friends who live in melbourne outside of melbourne australia which has some very strict rules about having to wear a mask at all times when you're outside, even if you're by yourself in a field miles away from any other human, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the law, right? Which is kind of stupid. No, I, I agree. And I'm, I'm guessing that compliance with that law is not as great as they would hope, but it doesn't need to be, right? Because if you are out in the field in the middle of nowhere and you're not wearing your mask, 
you're not exposed to anybody else. And frankly, nobody's going to see that you're not wearing a mask anyway, right? Uh, Australia's turning into quite a nanny state. So these days, probably somebody would report you. Oh, great. I think I, in my travels, I've noticed that countries tend to either be uh, law-breaking countries or law-abiding countries. Um, yeah. Like Germany is definitely a law and rule-abiding country. Uh, yeah. Or Ireland, not so much. Ireland's more like, oh, yeah, that's the rule, but it's stupid. So let's figure out what's going to work for everybody. That's I like that. Actually, that's more that fits more to my uh, uh, personality, I guess. Yeah, me too. So, so what do the next six months look like? Do you think for you and for the world? Uh, well, personally, I'm going to finish out my volunteerism uh, at the park uh, through the end of February, and then where are you working? Carpinteria State Beach. Oh, cool. And what do you do? Uh, mostly, I uh, change trash can liners. Oh, that's okay. Mostly what I do. Well, you're a volunteer, but that's that's okay. It's something that needs to be done. So. Exactly. Like when you know staffing is low, so we're down to I think like today there's only one permanent maintenance person on staff who had to do who had to clean like every single bathroom unit and fix a whole bunch of stuff, and he's just totally overwhelmed. So it's good to have volunteers okay. for that. Yeah. Um, once that's done, I hope to do some traveling. Um, if international travel is a possibility, uh, I've been eyeing the idea of going to Vietnam for a few months, um, get amazing houses at the beach there for hardly any money. Um, and if it's not, and if it's not, I'm thinking about doing a cross country trip across the U S up to like Maine or something like that. I start from Arizona in March or April. By the time I get to Maine, it'll be like July. That sounds really cool. So is there anything I can plug for you, Scott? Uh, well, I, I think volunteerism in general, uh, most people have a lot of time on their hands and there's a lot of different things you probably would like to have somebody do in your community or in your neighborhood. So, uh, figure out how you can help somebody, uh, here in LA, one volunteer opportunity that I really liked was, uh, food bank LA and project angel, both of which try to get, uh, food into the hands of people who need it. And there's a lot of wasted food out there and people who need to eat it. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, I suggest, uh, Spending less time on your couch and less time in front of your TV and more time uh, helping uh, your fellow humans. That is a very noble thing to say, Scott. Thank you. And uh, thanks for taking some time out, um, finding a place with good Wi-Fi and chatting with me. Yeah, no problem. It's good to hear from you. 